0: Let's talk about sarcoma, a podcast that looks at the expected, the unexpected, and everything in between post-sarcoma diagnosis. Brought to you by Socket to Sarcoma and the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation. With me, your host, Michael Whipper Whipflee,
1: And me, Catherine Mahoney. In this episode, we talk to family members about their experiences and sarcoma journeys with loved ones. In part three, we talk to Lee, Vic, Naomi, Susie, and Kylie. This podcast contains stories of cancer, death and bereavement which may be distressing to some listeners. Please reach out to your support network if you are affected or call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Welcome to the pod Naomi how are you? Hello good thank you. (laughs) Thanks for joining me. Tell me, uh, Matt, your husband has has only very recently been diagnosed in in February of this year. Can you tell me what presented and why he went to the doctors in the first place?
2: Um, Well, for a while, he was complaining about things like insomnia and um, not being able to feel his leg and things like that. And then one night, he just tapped me on the shoulder and said, "I I can feel a lump here. Can you feel it? And then we had a feel and... Um, I said, Yeah, there's something. And so he went to the GP the next day who ordered an ultrasound. Um, and then he came home from that ultrasound appointment and said, The woman just looked at it, didn't say anything, and then started doing my entire body. And we were like, mm, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> um, and then um the next day he went back to see the GP and said the GP said, Yeah, um, there is a tumour of some sort. Um, I, I think it's either benign or possibly a lymphoma. Um, and then we were, and then he said, next step is a scan and things, but while, whilst we were waiting for the scan, he became, felt really unwell. So he went to the emergency and it was the emergency doctor who got the scan done and said, I think it could be a lymphoma or sarcoma, but I think it probably is a sarcoma. And so that took us, um, in a direction of sarcoma because Matt did some Googling and he saw that sarcoma is very rare and that it's best to see a sarcoma specialist, even if you're doubting it. So that's what we did. Um, the specialist actually said, uh, it's probably a lymphoma. It's, you know, sarcoma is not very common, So but let's do a biopsy. And then, um, four days later he caught up and said, yeah, it is a sarcoma. Wow. So, yeah. So, um, it, and it's a very, very rare one um, that's common in children. So we actually got, even though it, it was between about four weeks in total from the beginning of finding a lump to getting a diagnosis, but we've been told that that's actually a pretty short period for such a rare cancer because it is quite hard to find and diagnose yeah, yeah.
1: I mean Naomi Matt's uh, you know he's not even 40 he's 38 yeah. he's healthy yeah. how how did you feel when you had that um diagnosis
2: um well it, it was it because it it did go on for four weeks and it felt like eternity it was actually it was a huge relief to know what it was because um when you don't know what it is, but you know it's probably cancer, you don't know what the treatment will look like. You don't know who the specialist will be, um, and we we felt like we were navigating through a system that wouldn't let us in. So at least now we knew that it was a sarcoma, and we could see a specialist, and we were we were we were fa- finally let into the cancer center, so we can start something. But it was just a just a sense of relief to know that
1: it, it will actually something will happen now. I know that both of your families are or were overseas, and you've got, you've got your two girls, you've got Vivian who's four, Sylvie wasn't even one then back in diagnosis time. So that's, that's a lot to be, to be maintaining a family, two young children, and the enormity of, 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 you know, the diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was a challenging time. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you you both seem like you're quite uh forward thinking. So did you mm-hmm. just were you you know, you were obviously given information by your clinicians, but did you go out and sort of search more around the the topic and the subject?
2: Um we did initially. Um but we um early on we found that um, once we knew what it was, it was it was quite counterproductive to do further research into it because it unnecessarily scared us, I think. Mm-hmm. And um for a rare cancer like sarcoma, it seems like every case is quite unique and outcomes can vary. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, my husband has a science background. He was looking up what chemo drugs he was taking and it made him really emotional and gave him a lot of anxiety and we just I just told him to stop stop doing that we just need to trust in the specialists and you know we um sometimes google doctors not your friend and it it just provide us uh, it gave us too much anxiety basically so oh, we just stopped
1: yeah, yeah. But, and, and i've yeah. heard that before talking to people on this journey and i think yeah. you can go down the rabbit hole and one google link too many can just send you into into oblivion on it, can. it and it's yeah and as you said every case is different pretty much in yeah. the spectrum um yeah were were you and matt always happy with the management of his treatment um
2: Yes, once we got the diagnosis and got into the cancer centre, the management of the treatment has been pretty good. Um, we're really happy with his oncologist and the nurse coordinator we deal with. Um, his, she's really helpful. Um, and we do feel very confident in the care of the MDT and it's led by a very capable
1: surgeon. Um, yeah. There you are. Well, that's great. That's great yeah. news. Um, yeah. I know we've we've mentioned the girls already um but how yeah. how are you mal- managing to balance Matt's treatment um you know with the needs of two little children Yeah um well it has been very hard um
2: it's you know I I do have a still a breastfed baby and a preschooler um but it it did feel like a blessing and a curse in a way because sometimes all I wanted to do was um curl up in bed and cry. Um, I just didn't want to get up and do anything. But I did have to get up every morning because the kids needed to be fed and, you know, bathed and clothed and their basic needs needed needs needed to be met. And um, having kids made me keep going every single day. And so um, it felt like, a blessing and a curse. It was. It just every day I I had to keep their routine and keep going. But yeah, also it was very hard to juggle that with Matt as well, I bet it was very yeah. ill. But yeah, but l- luckily now Matt's parents who are here and helping us, so mm, that's given us right. yeah yeah yeah.
1: Um, but, yeah. As, but as well as going through this journey um and trying to juggle two little girls, COVID. <laughs> Yeah. COVID hit too, didn't it? So yeah. pretty much, you know, how's that impacted uh, Matt's treatment and 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 your journey so far?
2: Um, luckily, Matt's treatment hasn't been affected at all. We've been assured many times that it won't affect Matt's treatment. Um, Matt's treatment is a very high priority and, and very highly triaged. So nothing has been delayed or anything like that. Um, it has been a very challenging time. Um, Matt sort of, um, Matt's cancer journey has pretty much coincided with COVID all sort of starting to blow up in March. So the day, the day after Matt got admitted to hospital for treatment was the day schools got shut down and then everything got shut down. You know, a lot of friends couldn't, couldn't visit us anymore, you know, um, you know, people tell you that when, you, when you've when you got a family member with cancer, get people to rally around you and help you. And, well, we couldn't do any of that, really. Um, we did have some family members helping us, but, you know, we certainly couldn't ask people to take my elder child out for a play date or anything like that. So um, it, it's been a strange new world. <laughs> um, but, but then I guess, in a sense... Um, we, we are in this cancer bubble, so the COVID stuff in some ways hasn't affected us as much as others probably because we're just in and out of hospital all the time. So being told to stay at home didn't really apply to us because that was my life anyway. It was just constantly being in and out of hospital
1: visiting him. So, yeah. Have you, um, so there is a slight silver lining there, at least, you know, we're all sort
2: of, although. Didn't really notice the
1: shutdown. No, no difference at all. Yeah. Um, Naomi, have you been put in in touch with any other, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, wives or or partners that are going through something similar? No, no.
2: um, uh, You really are in the wilderness and expected to navigate yourself until you get a diagnosis. Um, I happen to know someone our age with similar age kids who'd just gone through treatment for lymphoma and she was really helpful giving us some advice. Um, she told us to do things like go to the dentist before he starts chemo because mouth disease can cause issues and we had no idea about things like that. So it would have been really nice to have people in similar situations we could connect to, but... Those kinds of services weren't really available to us, really. Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: Um, yeah. Would you feel comfortable sharing? You know, some of the lowest points you've you've been going through since February.
2: Um, definitely, the lowest point was when um, he was admitted to hospital, um, uh, and was we were t- told that there was a real possibility he could die because he his tumor grew so quickly um between finding a lump and getting the diagnosis that it completely blocked his bowels and the surgical team kept coming into the to his room telling to tell him that um there's a real chance of perforation and if that happens he'll die <laughs> um and then but then on the same days the oncology team came in to say oh you know it's a very aggressive cancer which means that chemo it's very responsive to chemo so we're hopeful that the chemo will respond quick enough for the tumor to shrink and the bowels will open up. Um, but there was about three or four days there where the surgical ke- ke- team kept coming in every day to say, prepare for your last days, get your wheels ready and things like that. And then the oncology team coming in to say, Oh no, you'll be, you'll be okay. We're hopeful. We're hopeful. But luckily the oncology team were. The
1: right ones, Naomi. That must but, have been a roller coaster. That's it was hideous yeah. to hear. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, but yeah, and it was at the same time where it was bang on the time when all the shutdowns were happening too. So it really did feel like the end of the world. Gosh, it did. Um, Yeah, but yeah. Luckily, the chemo worked, and now it's shrunk considerably. But within our family, we all joke around how about how we live for Matt's bowel movements.
1: (laughs) (laughs) At least, at least you can make light of his bowel movements now. God bless him.
2: (laughs) Um, but yeah, he's in, he's in. Uh, his treatment's going much more smoothly now, That's luckily. <laughs> yeah, um, but those first few weeks were very
1: scary. I can't even imagine. Um, yeah. H- h- who do you lean in on? I mean, you know, you have to be—you have to be mum, you have to be wife, you have to be kind of family rock. Do you lean yeah. in on someone?
2: Yeah, my mum's been a really amazing support. Support. We FaceTime all the time, um, and yeah, I guess. I chat to friends regularly. I mean, a lot of friends text to check in on us awesome and things, which are very nice. And yeah, I mean, Matt's in a much better place now. So when he's not sick with chemo, he's, he's, we can rely on each other. He's, he's a bit more present now, yeah. which is great. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and have your friends and family, have they known how to be and how to interact? I mean, you know, as you mentioned, COVID's meant they, they can't just drop the casseroles over and they can't, you know, come and take the kids out because of, you know, his, he's sort of, you know, at a time where he can't be around any extra germs. Um, yeah. But have they been, have they been supportive? Yeah.
2: Um, I mean, obviously everyone was shocked as, you know, it's not surprising. Um, but yeah, a lot of people have been very supportive. Um, they've, as you said, they have offered to help, but there was a lot, the things they could do are limited. But I really appreciated friends who just dropped off meals at the doorstep without having to ask and things like that. Those kinds of gestures are really something you really appreciate when you don't have a lot of capacity to think about what meals to give the kids and things
1: like that. Yeah. So sometimes it is those simple things, isn't it, that makes the difference? But it's not, we're not it always, does, yeah. we're not always good at asking, even when people offer, you know. Okay? Yeah. So, yeah. That's, so I think that's, yeah. that's good for people to hear that are listening. Um, yeah. Naomi, for anyone that's listening that's starting out um, on their sarcoma journey, either with a parent or, a, you know, or a child or a, a friend, what would you like to say to them? Is, is there something you wish you'd known before you started this?
2: Um, well, obviously we're not even halfway through our journey yet, but, um, and we're still definitely part of going through it, but just take one day at a time, you know, try not to overthink what could happen in the future. Um, a cancer journey is long and scary, but you have to concentrate on the now and getting through each day. Um, and you do have it in you. My mom said to me early on, imagine a year ago, pregnant with my second child, thinking that this right now, what I'm going through now will be your life. You would have. There's no way you would have thought you could get through it. But I am. Um, it's been hard, but I'm fine. It's human beings are resilient
1: and we can rise to the challenge. That's fantastic yeah. advice and good yeah. advice from your mum. Mums always yeah. know what to say, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> I think they must <laughs> yeah, get a exactly. book. They get a book when we get to 20 <laughs> yeah. or 18 and they're like, right, read that. Um, Naomi, I really appreciate you taking the time to no share problems. your story. Um, yeah. and, and all the best to Matt. Um,
0: thank you. And yeah. yes,
1: I really, it's just, yeah, it's it's just wonderful that you're able to share. So thank you very much for joining us. No problems.
2: Thank you. Thank
1: you. Welcome, Uh, Vic. Lovely to have you and thank you so much for your time today. Um, Vic, can you tell me what your first reaction was when you learnt um, Harry, your son, had been diagnosed with sarcoma? Um, I think initially it was one of shock, um,
3: um, pretty much denial. I remember um, we'd seen the surgeon and he'd suggested that he thought that's what Harry had. And I remember driving in my car and I rang my friend who knew one of the top X-ray guys and I said, who is this? He said, Harry's got cancer. How can he have cancer? Look at him. There's nothing wrong with the kid. Who is this man? Um, And I later found out he's an utter legend. Um, So yeah, at the time it was pretty horrific. I think when they actually came out and said um, they did the biopsy and uh, two days later they came and basically said you know harry has got osteosarcoma and i just remember them saying um, you know we can discuss this and that and i just looked at her and said you just told me my son's got cancer what do you want me to talk about you know this is just well just horrific um yeah so it's words you never want to hear really hey
1: not at all. Not at all. And can I take it? Can I take it back a bit? Um, yeah. What What did Harry present with that you went to the doctor in the first place? Uh, you know.
3: Um, he said he had a, a sore shoulder. Um, I remember him just saying he didn't want to go. He'd go swimming, but obviously he couldn't rotate this arm, so swimming was particularly painful. Um, he was still doing other stuff, so I just thought he was being a lazy nine-year-old and didn't want to swim. And I remember. I remember saying to him when he came back from squad swimming, he said, "Oh, um, my arm hurt," and Dad shouted at me because I wasn't swimming. And I said, "Mate, look, if you don't want to swim, that's fine. Get out the pool. Stop being lazy." Yep, yeah. <laughs> those words will haunt me forever. Um, but two days later, yeah, um, he you know he woke up that night crying in his sleep, and I thought, "Yeah, that's not faking it." Um, and I. You know, as life is very busy, I forgot to book him into the doctors. And then the following day, he did the same thing. And I was like, oh, we better get to the doctors. Um, And then from there, they sent us straight, they sent us for x rays. Um, They told me they thought he had a, um, oh, not, it wasn't cancer. They just thought it was a bone infection. Um, And there's me, oh, worst mother in the world. Son's got a bone infection. Yeah, far worse. But anyway. yeah. And it was, it was just from there. And we pretty, pretty quick within a week or so, I think we were in 10 days, he was having chemo.
1: Wow. And, and had you and the family heard of sarcoma before then? Did you know what it was? Um, Funnily enough, a, well, not a friend of ours, um, her,
3: her daughter had had you sarcoma from our school. Um, so I knew what it was, but I remember when David said to me, oh, I think he's got osteosarcoma. It could have been a, a noodle dish for all I knew. I hadn't, I just, mine went blank and I was like, yeah, what's that? And then he said, you know, you'll have to have chemo. And I was like, oh, oh, I know what that is. So I, no, osteosarcoma meant nothing to me, even though I'd heard of, you know, urine sarcoma. I just didn't, just didn't click. And I just thought, no, this isn't, um, what is this? But as soon as he said chemo, I was like, oh dear.
1: I know that word. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yep. Oh gosh. So, so, um, Vic, you had the information from the, the clinicians. Did you do any extra research? Did you look anywhere else for information or did you just go with, with what you were told? Um, no, we pretty much went with
3: what we we're told. Um, he went on to a study, um, and then at the end of his, um, so far into chemo before surgery, and when they have surgery, they do another um, check, and you either do one pathway or another. So, no, we sort of left it to them, and people do say, you know, this, and I said, it's their job. Mm-hmm. I don't have a clue. So they will tell me what we're doing, not um, – yeah, the surgeons, um, and, you know, obviously you get your protocol and your chemo
1: treatment pattern, but –
3: yeah, they were pretty good.
1: So were you happy with the management of Harry's treatment? Um, look, I think
3: 90, 98% of it was great. Um, I didn't leave that kid's side um, for most of the time. He um, Even if I went, I remember going to get a coffee upstairs and he'd find someone with a phone and be ringing me. So we didn't go very far until I stayed in the hospital most of the time. Um, and you sort of really quickly got to know what would happen um, with the treatment, how they'd react, like literally to the half hour if they were going to be sick or mm-hmm. something was going to happen, you knew. Um, but you also knew, if, and that's the one thing I would say, is always trust your gut instinct. Um, but it, I think you just you learn how they react because it's pretty similar every time. Um, yeah, but generally the nurses were amazing and we actually – ended up with quite a few friends from there. So, yeah, they were good.
1: So, I mean, Harry was so young at the time, but, um, I mean, now you've got two daughters, you've got Ellie and Holly, but at the time you just had Ellie who was was five. How how as a mum do you manage, you know, being by Harry's side the whole time? He's in and out of hospital multiple times. How did you balance that with with sort of trying to, to keep things normal for Ellie?
3: Um, we had friends over from, we had family stay from the UK. Um, we had my niece, Laura, she'd literally, oh, she wasn't even that old. She was probably 18, maybe even younger. She literally got on a plane and came over here and stayed with us. And she was an absolute godsend, um, because she could pick Holly up from school and take it, um, Ellie, sorry, pick her up from school, take her to school. Um, so that was brilliant. Um, you know, we had, my parents lived down the road, um, and I remember, uh, they would, um, they would ring up, like dad would ring Harry and say, what do you want for dinner? And Harry would put in his order of, I'll have steak and I'll have this and I'll have that. And dad would cook it and bring in whatever he wanted. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it was hard and obviously everyone dealt with it differently. So, a lot of the time I felt like instead of, um, you know, party A being talked to, you to know, talk to party B, like A would ring me and then I'd have to ring them. And I'm like, hold on, I'm the one in hospital. I'm the one dealing with Harry, can't you lot sort this out? So it was, yeah, it wasn't easy. No, I bet it wasn't. And um, there was a lot of things you missed at school and stuff, so that was
1: hard as well. Would, would you feel comfortable, Vic, sharing maybe, you know, one of your lowest points throughout th- that time? Um, I think for me the worst
3: part was when he had surgery. So there was a lot of tears, a lot of tears that um, couple of weeks leading up to surgery. Um, I think the day of surgery was probably the worst, longest day of my life as well. It, I think he was in there for 19 hours. Um, yeah, it was, it was. that was definitely the worst. I think it was the chemo, while they have chemo, you can't actually see see it if you know what I mean um whereas the surgery obviously we knew that would change Harry's life forever so that was probably the hardest part definitely
1: that was it was 2010 wasn't it when um Harry was diagnosed um how how is he now 10 years on um yeah he's fine he's got um he's got
3: limited movement in his arm that's never going to come back but he's still got his arm um he's got a bit of hearing loss from the chemo and there's definitely other psychological things from you know the whole going through it and obviously now with the arm and stuff is there's definitely differences but yeah it's he's got to deal with it but he's pretty good it's mm-hmm. pretty good he's at uni now he's doing architecture so oh that's brilliant yeah yeah so hopefully he'll he's and he's good at that Mm -hmm. that's great great
1: (laughs) I'd love to be an architect in my next yeah my next life (laughs) (laughs) um were you given were you sort of introduced to any other parents that were going through something similar at the time um as as you were with Harry um there was a Mom at our school, who mm-hmm. knew a friend
3: who'd had exactly what Harry had had um, a couple of years before. Um, because when Harry had his surgery, I think it was only, he was like the third person to have it done. Um,
1: wow.
3: Yeah. So, and I think this other kid might have been the first or the second. So it was, you know, pretty, wasn't, it was pretty rare then. Um, but yes, I spoke to this mum and it was really useful. Because especially with the surgery, she told me things that, um, you know, obviously they go through all the stuff that's going to happen, but um, um, with the kids and they've lost their hair and stuff. And one of the things she said to me is when you see him, they pump them full of so much fluid that his head is just going to be this big like water balloon. And I was like, "Wow, that's a bit weird, but when I walked in, I knew exactly what she meant. It was like you could press it and it just you know squidged around because there was so much water um but things like that that you would have just freaked out about um it was really good because obviously you sort of were prepared for it mm-hmm. um but yeah she she was it, that was great to have someone to sort of ask questions and um and see you know what was happening or what was you know how harry was going to react i mean obviously they all react differently mm-hmm. but um yeah no that was a bit she i think she was probably the only one that i've really spoke to but i think possibly there wasn't many others at the time who'd been through what harry'd been through
1: mm-hmm. were you provided any form of pastoral or practical support from uh, the treating cancer facility um not
3: that I can remember okay. I know there is I know there's a lot of stuff like red kite have um, services you can use, and we did get vouchers and
4: mm-hmm.
3: petrol cards and that sort of thing, but um, I remember um, the only thing I would have said is um, one um I think one of the things I would say is. Harry sort of ticked along okay and we all did. So, you know, we spoke and I think one of the things I would suggest to anyone who maybe would be to get a good rapport with um, a psychologist or someone for the child to beforehand because when it came to Harry's surgery, um, he probably needed to talk to someone, but he didn't have that connection with anyone. Um and I remember the one of the um, physios coming in and saying saying to Harry, because he was getting quite angry with her, and she said, "Oh, do you think you need to talk to someone?" And he said, "Yep, yeah, I'm talking to you." <laughs> <laughs> and I went, "Okay, wow, <laughs> yeah." <laughs> um, so for then you to say to Harry, "Oh, you need know, to get need to go and see this guy," well, why do I need to see him? Whereas if there had been a more gentle introduction, it would have been better.
1: That's great advice because I guess that's yeah. not something you think about till the moment it's needed or even after the event. But um, yeah, um especially when children are younger, that that trust needs to be built up, doesn't it, as you said? Yes. Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, I think that everyone obviously they all react differently and some of the younger ones won't understand. But Harry was in that sort of, he wasn't a teenager, he wasn't a kid phase. So, yeah, but no, I would definitely say that because mm-hmm. at least then you've got a connection and you know you've got someone that they trust before you need it.
1: hmm No, that's great advice. Um, Vic, aside from that, is there anything uh for parents listening who might be starting their sarcoma journey with their child that you'd like to say to them or advice you'd like to pass on?
3: Um, well obviously get in touch with socket to Sarcoma because they've got great support. Mandy is absolutely amazing. Um But it's also then you've got contacts with people who have been through or are going through um, what journey you're about to um, go into. Um, uh, Nobody's treatment is going to be the same. But just having people who understand because as much as your friends are there, they don't get it. As much as they'll try, you can't get it until you've walked that path. So talking to other people who've been on the journey, on the journey, finished the journey, that's what you need.
1: No, that's um that's great advice. Um, Vic, thank you very much for your time uh, and sharing your journey. Um, okay. Good luck, good luck to ha- to Harry. Yes, that's thank um you. that's a great it's a great degree to have under your belt. So tell him yes, we look forward maybe, we look forward to seeing what he creates.
3: See, yes, houses by Harry. <laughs> Lovely.
1: <laughs> well, um, thank you again for your time, Vic, um, and thank you for sharing your experience. All right, no worries. Thank you very much. Lee, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you, Kath. And thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. Lee, let's talk a little bit about your son, Hugh, um, and his journey with sarcoma. Can I ask how um, it presented itself? First up, how, you know, why you guys went to the doctors?
5: Yeah, okay. Um, Hugh was um, 15. He was very, very fit and healthy, playing a lot of cricket. Um, So he was at a specialist cricket school, um, had just captained his, his under-15s team to the grand final and he'd actually was, was in the middle of or in the process of, of selections for the state under-15 squad. Um, so he was very, very busy and he had been saying to me probably for about I don't know, three weeks, oh, I've got a bit of a pain in my leg and, you know, I've like been... As you do, you sort of say, "Well, you know, playing three games of cricket a week, you're bound to have some soreness." So, you know, ice it and let's get on with things. Um, and then he, we had uh, a break for Easter, I think it was. And he said, "No, it's it's still really sore." I said, "Well, okay, well, let's go see the physio." And so we went off to the physio. He didn't have a lump; it was just simply a pain, and he certainly. Um, didn't it didn't stop him from doing things like he was actually selected in the state squad even with this going on in his in his bones um, so he it didn't stop him from doing anything so you know you just I just thought eh you know it's okay let's have a look at this mm-hmm. so we took him off um, to the physio and we just got incredibly incredibly lucky his normal physio um, that we've been going to for years looked at him. And recognised a sarcoma. It, it's incredible. He said to us later, um, in his fifteen years of being a physio, he should have actually seen one case of sarcoma. He'd actually seen five. So it was just a bit more present wow. in his in his head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. So he um, sent us off for when uh, he sent us off for a, a, a scan, an ultrasound. And while we're at the ultrasound. Um, they said, "Don't go. We want to do an X-ray, and then sit there again. And don't go because I think we want to do a CT scan." And you know, instantly, I'm sitting there going, "Oh my lord!" You know, like this is this something something big is going on here. And you know, even even when we looked at you know that you yeah, have the TV monitor in the ultrasound room, um, we looked at his room at his. His bone, his his leg, and it looked like honeycomb. So I was like, "Oh God, what oh is God. that?" You know, like yeah, it was really obvious very, very quickly that um, that there was a problem. And the radiographers sort of said to us, "Go straight back to your your um, physio." And the physio um, physio said to Hugh something about a tumour. And he was only 15, you know, so I, I listen, I'm listen. i sitting there listening going, oh, my God, you know, oh, my God, this is what this is. So we walked out to the car. We were going straight up to our GP, um, walked straight out to the car and got in the car and I said to Hugh, do you understand what he just said to you, Hugh? And he said, no, not really. And I said, um, he's just told you that you have cancer. And uh, Hugh just turned his head away from me and a couple of tears escaped. Um, then he turned back and he said, okay, let's do this. And that was pretty much the only time I saw Hugh cry and that was it. He just, wow. let's do this. Let's get on with this. You know.
1: What a brave man. What a brave what amazing, man. Amazing. Amazing. Um- now, this had just come off the back of you recovering from um, breast cancer, hadn't it? So your family were very, I, I would imagine, well-versed in the world of cancer at that point, or certainly a, a breast cancer anyway. Did, did you know, had you heard of sarcoma before the diagnosis? Did you know anything about it? Um, I don't, I'm not sure. You know, I
5: think I may have heard the the term sarcoma, I don't know if I actually thought of or knew it to be a cancer. I certainly hadn't heard of osteosarcoma, which is what Hugh had, um, but I had definitely heard of bone cancer and I knew it was something that was really awful and to be feared. So I, osteosarcoma or bone cancer, definitely I'd heard of,
1: Yeah. Um, did you attempt to find any other information um, other than what Hugh's clinicians had presented you with? Um, I guess this is, you know,
5: having... You don't often get an opportunity to say, thank God I've had cancer, but <laughs> I did. But I but I honestly can say that, that, you know, because of my own experience with breast cancer, just, you know, a year or so before Hugh was diagnosed, I was able to um, to say to Hugh do not go onto online, we're not going to go and look at all the crazy stuff that is written online because I knew from my own experience that there is a world of crazy out there that you really don't need to let into your head. Um, We decided very early on as a family that we would trust our clinicians or trust our sarcoma team um, and that we would look to them to answer questions but we'd also ask them if we wanted to, to for reputable sites that we could go and read things about rather than just potluck and scaring ourselves silly.
1: But, well, yeah. I mean, as you said, nobody nobody says they're glad they had cancer, but I suppose <laughs> that was a, a benefit from your experience that the whole Absolutely. family could yep. keep to. Um, yep. Were you and the family always happy with the management of Hugh's treatment?
5: We were incredibly lucky in that, that Hugh's treatment, his whole nine months of treatment, pretty much went as planned to the protocol. You know, we had one small blip um, after his first round of treatment um, where he uh, developed a bit of a rash on his chest, which turned out, when I took him into the hospital, just get it checked out, turned out to be um, school sores or scabies is, is the other word, which is, you know, fairly reasonably common and often you know presents with stress Mm -hmm. um even though (laughs) Hugh said to me very very surprised you know oh I don't think I'm very stressed (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) Hugh okay Okay, you've only been told you've got cancer and you know (laughs) you've just had your body full of chemicals but anyway okay so I guess while we're in there you know communication about the seriousness of that because you know like scabies are something that that People get all the time, you know, and you certainly don't think of it as a really serious thing generally, Mm -hmm. you know. um, But so to be, it wasn't communicated terribly well about why we had to stay in isolation, you know, why can't we just go home and stay at home, you know. Mm -hmm. I would have, but so I didn't understand and we weren't told very well that actually it's actually quite life-threatening. To Hugh because he had no immune system, and wow. because it was so early on in in his actual treatment, yes, we weren't really already there in, mm-hmm. our, in yeah. our heads, you know. So, so that was a bit of a a bit of a, a blip, but that was really the only one. It's more about his post treatment. Um, well, Hugh was fifteen, and he had all of his treatment in the children's system, mm-hmm. and then. At 18 or nearly 18, when he finished school, he got, sh- I won't say kicked, but kicked over to the adult system. And that transition period, that AYA, so adolescent young adult mm-hmm. transition period, was not as smooth as it should have been. Um, all of a sudden, your child is being treated as an adult. You know, he's 17, 18 years old, brain isn't fully developed, so decision making is not. Like you and I, yes, it's not—it's yes. not a fully developed brain,
6: mm-hmm.
5: um, and all of a sudden, your child is being treated technically as an adult. You know, and we're—we're we're, as parents are not really not always welcome to go into the into the cons- consults and things with them. Oh, really? Is, you know, the problem with that is that first of all, I can't make proper decisions, mm-hmm. really, but also he didn't he didn't really understand completely about his treatments he he probably could have rattled off the names of the drugs that mm-hmm. he was treated with, but not all of the procedures that he had and not all of the um or not, he didn't wasn't really completely aware about the ongoing um possible late effects mm-hmm. of of the the treatments that he's had because the drugs that he had Um, Some of them or most of them had been developed in the 70s, so they're quite old drugs. That's that's what happens with sarcoma. They're not new drugs and that's – anyway. So he wasn't really, you know, he he wasn't really across that he had to keep on looking at his heart health and he wasn't really um, across that his renal health had had been – maybe had been a problem at all or his reproduction health, for example, you Mm -hmm. know, what – 17, 15 to 17-year-old wants to talk to their mum or even any adults about their reproduction um, systems and problems. And Hugh's hearing was also affected. So he wasn't, like he was aware of it but he didn't have all of the information or all of the facts that he probably should have had in order to make good uh, decisions. Um, The other thing was that because he was only two years post-treatment, he wasn't put into a late effects clinic no, um, late effects clinics come into effect after five years post treatment so when you're a survivor essentially mm-hmm. there was no late effects clinic um, so he missed out on all of that sort of education about what he had to look out for and how he had to sort of think about his health for the rest of his life he missed out on that education so um, that's that's a real problem for me that that he missed out on that and I, I don't think that you know he he should still be getting that information as far as I'm concerned he should be in late effects clinic now really until around about 24 which is and when and he, they can't, say that your he can't
1: join no because he's it's gone from one system to the other okay yeah because it, essentially
5: it's it's in the children's system but it doesn't seem to be in the adult system which is sort of a bit crazy I think mm. um Yeah, because there's a lot to do, you know, there's a lot to try and sort of sort out. It's it's almost like the two systems don't talk to each other, isn't Mm -hmm. it? It's like some sort of weird yes minister episode, you know, where the (laughs) adults' system won't talk to the the children's system. And the other problem with that is that because sarcoma is such a multidisciplinary, you know, the nature of sarcoma is so multidisciplinary and that means that, you know, for Hugh that means that he was being treated by an oncologist, he was being treated by an orthopedic surgeon, he was being treated by um, he was having his heart looked at by the cardio uh, department, he was being treated by a physio to try and rebuild his muscles and his legs. He was also having his hearing tested ongoing, you know, regularly ongoing mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, so that's a lot to coordinate. You know, like, that's a lot for me to coordinate. That's almost a say, full-time alone, job for me to yeah, coordinate for sure. It's, it's huge, mm-hmm. you know. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, and this is actually a real problem because there's a lot of kids, the nutrition rate in kids around about this, this young adult, um, age rate, adolescent, younger old age range, and that's sort of 16 through to 24, say. Um, they, I mean, they already think that they, you know that they're bulletproof even after cancer they think that they're bulletproof which is just unbelievable and they don't want to be treated differently they don't want to be taught they don't want to be thought about as the cancer kid it's Mm -hmm. like for Hugh treatment is finished it's over that's it you know move on that's that's how he sort of thinks about it but that's actually not how it is you know Mm -hmm. like um once your treatment's finished, and a lot of a lot of people who have not been through cancer think this too, because you get that eye rolling. Oh God, are you still banging on about this sort of thing? Um, but it's just because treatment's finished does not mean the journey's finished. Mm-hmm. You know, this 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 is an ongoing, lifelong thing that Hugh will have to deal with. Mm-hmm. That he will be be looking at. You know, not ninety percent of adults who have had a, a childhood cancer, not just sarcoma, but all childhood cancers actually end up with some sort of chronic health disease.
1: So, yes. so for mums so. and dads listening who are just starting this journey, if, if their child falls in that kind of age category, that's really good advice mm. that, you know, you've, you've raised all of that for them to be across it um, yes. and to maybe really push, yeah. push to be in those meetings with the doctors and the clinicians.
5: Yeah, absolutely. You'd need to be in there. I mean, it's really hard at the moment because of, you know, the COVID COVID. restrictions Mm -hmm. in hospital that um, I'm I'm, one of the jobs that I do with Socket to Sarcoma is like a peer to peer support thing. And I talk to parents and children who are going through, especially young adult people Mm -hmm. um, who are going through this. And if they're being treated in the adult system, one, one young man that I know who's only just turned 18, his, his mum's been allowed to be with him for one hour a day for his whole treatment so far, and it's been months. And you're just looking at it going, you know, I, I don't know how she's coping. to I, I found it really difficult to leave Hugh alone in the hospital.
1: Mm-hmm. Full stop, yeah. let alone to be yeah, with him for an
5: hour yes. a day. Wow. She, she, in his, in his, his treatment went for nine months. He actually spent six months admitted in hospitals. Mm-hmm. He didn't. He didn't spend a single night alone in hospital. There was either myself, my husband, or my son Finn mm-hmm. would, would spend the night with him. So he's. Yeah, very, I, I just don't know lengthy.
1: how they cope. Um, yeah, Lee, talking about Finn. Um, you know, Finn, the older brother, he he just turned eighteen when uh, he was diagnosed. How yep. did How did he cope, and how did you and Jeff? try to balance normal life for him whilst all, you know, being by Hugh's side the whole time?
5: It was really, really tough. You know, like Finn was 18, turning, he turned 19 during the treatment, but, you know, so he's, he's an adult but he's only a young adult. Um, he got left alone a lot by himself. I often jokingly refer to Finn and it's only half-jokingly referred to Finn as my forgotten child because that is honestly how it felt. I felt very guilty. I carried a lot, and I still do, a lot of guilt about how often he was left alone, how he must have had all that time by himself with all of that worry and stress in
1: his head. Did, did, Just, Finn, did, really... did Finn talk to anybody? Did he and want to talk to anybody about it? Um, Finn, Finn, no, no, um, Finn is a very private person.
5: Mm -hmm. You know, I, I actually found even with my own breast cancer and he had very close friends at high school, I found out at his graduation because of the shocked faces on his friend's faces when I walked in with a headscarf on
1: He hadn't actually told them. Oh, they didn't know. Okay. So yes,
5: they didn't know, and so he's very private. He doesn't necessarily tell Mm -hmm. people what's going on, Um, and holds a lot of that. He's he's, you know he's he's a lovely, sensitive. Mm -hmm. He's a lovely young man, actually, but he's a very sensitive young man, and there has been the last couple of years he's he's actually sought out and found some counselling through um, mainly through Red Kite, Mm -hmm. which has been really really good for him but it's you know like that's that's nearly five years past Finn's a Huey's diagnosis so that's that he's getting that help still occasionally.
1: I I was going to ask if you're provided with any form of pastoral or practical support um from the treating cancer faculty um so Um, Red Kite was one? Red Kite was
5: yeah we had um you know, there are social workers obviously on the ward and, mm-hmm. and they were um, red kite, which was great. We had visits from canteen, which were which were good. Um, for Hugh, there was a lot of educational support post-treatment again. Mm-hmm. So cause he went into year 11 and 12 and so he was able to get some, um, Hugh actually kept up. With all of his studies while he was in treatment, he was absolutely determined to do that. So he wanted—he didn't want to fall behind. He wanted Mm. to graduate with his years. It was very important to him. So he worked really hard to do that. Um, But after treatment, he was able to get uh, some tutoring funds, both from Red Kite, not Red Kite, yes, Red Kite, and and Ronald McDonald House. Both of them. And it's sort of, we managed to sort of stretch that over the two years so that it helped him to get through um, and do pretty well on his, on his ATAR scores, so his year 12 exams.
1: That's great. Yep. He's doing well now, isn't yeah. he? He's, in the, he's at uni studying from home. He is. He is. He is. He's doing that. He's actually, um, he's, he took a year off
5: mm-hmm. after he finished school. He took a, a year off and he went over to England to play cricket for a year in, uh, for a season in Oxfordshire, which oh, was great. Fantastic. He had a brilliant time. Yeah. yeah. Eight to 18. And he took yes. off by himself, which was, that was really hard. to sort of meet, me putting him on a plane. <laughs> yeah, being on a plane to go to England by himself was like, oh my God, you know, like, and, mm-hmm. um, but he had a great time. He, he really I'm did. Sure, he, and I'm he grew sure he an awful lot. Yes. Yeah, yeah um, he, he did.
1: Yes. And, and, you know, lucky he did it, be, you know, while he could still travel so, uh, yes, it's sort of
5: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. good that he's had his year just yeah.
1: now. Um, Lee, thank you so much for for being so honest and sharing. Um, I know it's never easy yeah. when you're talking about a child. Um, can I finish by asking for any parents listening who were just starting their sarcoma journey, is there is there a piece of advice you'd like to pass on or something that you wish you'd known ahead of this journey?
5: Um... Yeah, I guess, you know, the advice that I actually often try and get across to to the parents that I speak to is, like, be really gentle on yourself. There is nothing that you did that caused this cancer. You didn't cause it. There's nothing you could have done that would have prevented it. There's nothing you could have done that really would have found it earlier. So be gentle on yourself and just, you know, find... Find groups like Fockers of Sarcoma, Find a support group that people who've been through it before you. And and ask them any question. None, no questions are too stupid. Honestly, no questions are too stupid. We've all been there. We've all gone waking up in the middle of the night with you know some stupid, not stupid, but really crazy idea in our head. You know, ask somebody will have been there before and you, and so, and we are only too happy to help. We that's that's pretty much what we do
1: That's what we're there for that's uh that's great advice lee and i think i think especially you know uh, parents we go straight to ourselves don't we, we, we it's oh, our yes. fault first whatever it is you know yeah. whether it's the blame game, yes. the blame game yes. is huge. so i i think even, that, even when you know yeah. that yes but still, it's still the still, guilt you know, isn't it so i yeah i think yeah, that's really yeah, important absolutely. really important for for mums and dads who are listening to To really just cross that one off the list. You know, you couldn't have done anything differently and it wasn't your fault. Um, Lee. Not at all. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for your help. Welcome to the podcast, Kylie. Thank you. Now we spoke to your son Cooper in episode 2 um and you know he was he was very wonderful with how honest and how much he shared of his journey so far but um you know we're chatting this episode to parents and friends and family um what was your first reaction on learning Cooper's diagnosis uh, I think my very first reaction was um it
6: with shock, I, it was sort of unbelievable, and I sort of hearing the word cancer um and the doctor tried to put it you know very mildly as mildly as he could to sort of soften the blow, I guess, but um I guess yeah my my first reaction really was shock i felt um i felt my whole body kind of just drop, and my throat sort of hit the floor, and my stomach hit the floor, and my hands kind of clenched onto Cooper sitting next to him, um, my mouth went dry. And and I just I felt very nauseous. Um, once I kind of you know realised what had sort of happened because we we really didn't go there for a can. The diagnosis we went to the doctor with tonsillitis um so it was yeah it was very it was very hard to hard to hear um but really sort of you know after that initial shock um I had, a, I had a drink of water and then just thought I need to get into active mode and think about what do I need to do now as Cooper's mother I remember looking at him and asking him if he was okay and in. Cooper it was, you know, cool kind of attitude. He was like, yeah, mum, I'm okay. And okay, what do we need to do now? So, um, of course he wasn't okay, but he was, he was playing cool for the doctor, of course. Um, and then, yeah, I think he, it kind of hit him a little bit later, but for me it was, it was immediate shock.
1: Absolutely. I mean, Cooper was 18 when he was diagnosed. You just don't expect a cancer diagnosis from someone so young and healthy, do you? Did you um had you had you heard of sarcoma before the diagnosis Kylie? Um no, I'd actually never
6: heard of sarcoma. I've heard of many other cancers before and never ever heard of sarcoma. Um it was it was all very new to me and um and because I knew it was in the bone, I immediately thought bone cancer is the worst form of cancer you can have. So, you know, immediately in my brain went to the worst case scenario um and yeah it was it was sort of it was sort of hard to hear and not really understanding what sarcoma was I really didn't know um you know what the future hold
1: uh, held for us so um it was hard yeah uh, did you attempt to find credible information about sarcoma other than what you were told by Cooper's clinicians um and and if so did you find it
6: uh I I didn't Google actually
1: that was one of the things that my
6: sister said to me uh, she's a social worker and she said whatever you do don't Google and I thought immediately I thought that's probably a good plan so I just decided not to Google and she said look I'll do the research for you um, so that was a really good that was really good advice so you know if I can offer any advice <laughs> don't don't Google um but yeah I I sort of I, I really wanted to understand the treatment the symptoms that I diagnose it but I put all my trust into the sarcoma team and just trusted what they knew and, and what they had to say, really. Um, and we just did what we were told. And um, and that's really what got us through, uh, absolutely. Apart from some other small things we wanted to sort of add to the treatment plan, but we we just did what we were told as much as we could. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We it's too always- hard for an 18-year-old to do, as they're told. <laughs> I
1: know. Or, or a mum not to hit Google. I think you were very, uh, yes. you showed yes. real restraint. Um, were, were you happy with the management of Cooper's treatment?
6: Uh, yeah, look, I think for the most part, you know, the staff were very competent. Um, and so although he had an oncologist and a surgeon and, um, sarcoma clinical nurses and all the rest of it, um, who were all absolutely amazing, I, as his mum, sort of took over project management of understanding everything. So I really made sure that I under- understood all the medical terminology, the treatment he was having, ensuring I understood what they were giving him, uh, and really, really that was for when the doctors kind of switched um, shifts and we had a new doctor that we hadn't met before. And I really needed to know that Cooper was having the right treatment. So I understood everything and ensured that I um, could relay the information and
1: double check the charts and all the rest of it. Would you recommend mums and dads be really meticulous with everything, all the details or as much as they can?
6: Uh, for me, I just knew I needed to be. I, I guess I'm that kind of personality anyway. Um, whilst I didn't interfere too much, I was just really about me understanding um, and also under, and also being able to sort of explain it in layman's terms to Cooper as well. Um, the sarcoma team were amazing and Cooper's oncologist is absolutely amazing and his surgeon as well. And, you know, they, they explained it to us the best way they could, but I just really needed for my own peace of mind to understand understand what uh, what what medication Cooper was having he had a few complications during surgery and that sort of thing so he was on a lot more medication I think than what he would have been uh, and as well as his um, you know his uh, chemotherapy had to change halfway through as well so I needed to understand and what you know was that would be, And uh, we needed to make some decisions. So I just, I really felt like I needed to know the ins and outs of the, the medical uh, information and medical treatment that was given to Cooper. And, and I was really there to look out for him mm-hmm. um, because he couldn't really do it for himself.
1: Absolutely. With Coop's treatment, you know, that would have been, I can only imagine, but all consuming. But, but in the meantime, you're still a family unit. There's still, you know, work to do. There's still balance. How, how did you juggle everything as a team?
6: Uh, So Cooper's treatment was uh, four hours away from where we lived. So we, we literally had to pack up and, and move. And Cooper had to have three, uh, three weeks of treatment out of, out of the month. So, um, you know, he was in hospital more than he was out of hospital. Uh, And yeah, we we just really made it work and we had lots of support, Um, lots of people visit and bring us food and, and, you know, do all sorts of things for us, help pay the bills
1: and, um, you know, fundraise. And it was just, you know, people were amazing. They really did rally out to support. That's so good to hear. Good, good to hear community and friends and kind of the whole network that pulls together, as we all do when these things happen. But um, yeah, no, that's, that's great to hear. Um, would you feel comfortable sharing maybe your lowest points throughout this time, Kylie? Yeah, I think I had a couple of lowest points, but um probably obviously
6: the lowest point was um you know not knowing what the future held in terms of the newly diagnosed sarcoma osteosarcoma um diagnosis that Cooper had and that was that was sort of very low. I remember that weekend was probably the lowest out of all of them. But moving into treatment, we you know um sort of felt like there was light at the end of the tunnel, and um, we understood more and more about sarcoma, and we uh, had lots of positive stories to sort of draw upon uh, as well. So, so that was really good, sort of coming out of that um, that dark point. Um, surgery was was hard. Cooper had an osteosarcoma in his right uh, femur, and so he had to have twenty five to thirty centimeters removed from his leg, uh, and he had a prosthetic uh, alloy. Leg put in uh, side his native leg, and so um, it wasn't so much that that was that was sort of th- that made me feel low. It was more um, the complications afterwards with the, the drop foot and the nerve pain and um, and the pain that you know it, the medication just couldn't take away. And uh, he he was my eighteen year old son, and you know he was a basketballer, you know tall and fit and uh, that I realised, you know, he he won't be following his dream and playing basketball, and I really felt for him at that point. Um, and I couldn't take the pain away, and the pain was just unbearable in terms of the nerve pain. Um, and and I I think that was looking back, that was my lowest point um, post diagnosis. But then I actually got to the end of treatment. Sorry, Cooper got to the end of treatment. No, you and both then, you um, both got to the and, end of
1: the treatment. It,
6: <laughs> yeah. We we both got through that that journey, and I remember um, I remember looking back, and uh, it, that was tough because I remember the psychologist saying, "You know, you may you you're on a bit of a high during the treatment, and you're always busy doing things and project managing, and you were you know always um, having something to do, but when treatment finishes." You, Things change again, and so you have to get used to used to that. So whilst Cooper got a clear a clear diagnosis, his his PET scan was clear, uh, and his chest CT was clear. Uh, I then fell into a little bit of a depression. Um, looking back and reflecting on what what Cooper had just been through, because I think I was just so. Busy Being a project manager, a nurse, a mum, a doctor, a medical professional, um, a psychologist, a a social worker, um, I'm I'm not qualified in any of those things, but certainly, you know, had to do that, um, you know, to be there for Cooper and, you know, as the cook, the cleaner. And then all of a sudden, I didn't have to do that so much anymore. And I, yeah, I kind of looked back and reflected, and I felt quite low at that point, thinking, "What now? Mm-hmm. What do we do now?" Um, and so I really had to readjust to my new way of thinking and a new way forward, um, and really trying to look for some joy then, mm-hmm. really um, in life. So uh, whilst it sounded good and positive, I really
1: needed to look back and go for- look back to go forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, So Kylie, when, I mean, even though you were maybe pre-warned that you might hit this lull or this sort of dip, did you, um, did you talk to anyone? You know, was was anybody sort of, you know, um, were you connected with anyone to talk about, you know, from a mental health point of view, either for yourself or Cooper during the journey?
6: (laughs) Um, yes, yeah, so Cooper had a psychologist he would speak to weekly. Mm-hmm. Um and she was also available for me as well and available for me post treatment. Um she did say that this this may happen and uh it was probably about maybe a month to sort of five weeks after being home I really started to feel down Uh, Mm -hmm. and I gave her a call and uh, because I just really didn't know what was happening I thought I'm supposed to be happy I'm supposed to think about the future and we've just got through this you know horrendous journey and um you know life is good I shouldn't be feeling like this so I gave her a call and and just explained what was happening and she was you know she, she she was expecting it um and I think that you know um Her advice really was that you know she said that that possibly would happen, uh, and for to move forward really was to accept what had happened, uh, and then really just to to think about you know something joyful and really start because I started to feel guilty about even thinking about wanting to do something for myself and all all of that sort of stuff. But she sort of took all of that um, all of those doubts away really Mm -hmm. and helped me sort of move towards the future. Absolutely.
1: Um, Kylie, I think that's so important for, for parents listening to this to understand that they, they have feelings, they have emotions, they have highs and lows too. And, and as much as, you know, we all put our children first, you you also need to make sure that you're as strong and as, uh, and as upright as you can be because you need to be the rock most of the time, but you also need to maybe lean into someone else. And whether that's a professional person or a family member or whatever, I think, I think that's really important what you just said. Really important. Um, did your friends, um, we, you know, did they treat you differently after Coop's diagnosis? Did things change in friendship groups?
6: Um, yeah, it did actually. There were different friends that sort of did different things. You know, I had one one group of friends that were just amazing, and they were there from the start up to the finish and you know they clean my house and buy groceries and organize a fundraiser and um just do absolutely anything you know take a trip to sydney just to give me a break and you know that sort of thing and um and they were absolutely amazing there were some friends that kind of brought around food in the beginning and that was their way of showing that they cared and then i didn't really see them again um you know throughout the treatment uh and there were others that you know were quite close that that i didn't really sort of hear much from or or see at all and um you know but but they were there in the background so um yeah, I you know, and, and similar with some family as well. So some were really helpful, and some, um, you know, sort of I just knew were there in the background. Um, so yeah, I guess it really sort of depends on how how people were dealing with it themselves as well. Um, sometimes people don't know what to do, uh, but I sort of uh, you know. Uh, and I really wanted to do everything myself and, you know, that sort of thing as well. So I really had to, um, you know, we don't really like to sort of take, um, you know, I guess what I call is as charity, um, you know, too well. And so I really had to swallow my pride a lot of the time. And, you know, people just, communities come together and they need to do something, whatever that is for them, um, whether it's making them feel better or- or wanting to make you feel better um people do it for different reasons and so we just sort of try really had to take on um you know as much as much help and support as we could mm-hmm. absolutely um but yeah I yeah friends and were, friends were, were, were different um and and some were sort of you know really surprised us and others um You know, there was sometimes a little bit of disappointment as well. But Mm -hmm. uh, I guess that's you know, I look back on the way that I've supported people in the past and I probably haven't done the right thing in terms of what other people needed at that point in time either. And people just don't know what to do.
1: So um, if someone comes forward with support and help, yeah, definitely should take it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, Kylie, for parents of those listening who are just starting their sarcoma journey with their child, is there anything you'd like to say to them or, you know, maybe there's something you would have liked to have known that would have helped your journey that you didn't know that you might like to share?
6: Yeah, um, one of the, there, there are a few things, but one of the major things really was, um, so the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation, uh, we didn't know about. But if, yeah, if, you know, you're on a sarcoma journey, you really look up the Cooper Rice Braining Foundation because, um, yeah, they're amazing, absolutely supportive. And, and we sort of, um, yeah, really sort of, I guess, share our stories and, um and Tanya was very supportive when Cooper went through his second surgery. He had to have a, a second surgery and, and have his prosthetic replaced. And she was there, you know, at the minute I told her about it, she was there and very supportive. And um, that's certainly one one place to look. Um, you know, if you don't know anything about sarcoma and you need support, yeah, give, give the foundation a call, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, but I, I guess the other things really, um, y- y- you do become – everything as well so you become the doctor the nurse the mum the cleaner the cook um and you really will get burnt out uh probably not during treatment but at the end like I did and although I got this, this same advice but really do need to look after yourself go for walks, whether it's even up and down the stairs at the hospital and and try and eat well um as well and just just find some joy in every day, you know, even if it's watching a favourite show or reading a book or, you know, even if it's just for 10 minutes for yourself, try and find something and, and try not to feel guilty about that. Because if you're not there to support your children um, or your child going through sarcoma, um, you, you pretty much, you know, usually usually it's, you know, one person there and, and we really do need to look after ourselves to be able to look after them as well. So. Yeah, I think they're probably probably the things that I would I would definitely uh, give advice on.
1: Kylie, that's wonderful. Thank absolutely. you. That's absolutely wonderful, and I think you've covered a lot um, for for any of the mums and dads that are listening to this and and starting their their journey. So, thank you very much for for being so honest and open. Thank you.
6: You're welcome. Thank
1: you. Uh, Welcome, Susie, to the podcast. Great to have you on board again. Um, Now, Jack, your son, what was your first reaction when learning about his diagnosis? Absolutely devastated.
4: Yeah, never, didn't see it coming at all. And um, yeah, it's the last thing you would think of for a healthy, fit, 20-year-old boy, young man. So yeah, no, we were totally flawed.
1: Had you heard of sarcoma? before? Did you know what it was?
4: No, never never heard of it. Um, So yes, I had to start Googling (laughs) as you do, which is not always helpful because I think some of the information Mm. you find, um, you can find information from medical research, which can be overwhelming, or you can find your statistics, um, which may or may not be helpful. So we found Yes, quite a bit of information, but that made us more confused than anything i think
0: and when you when you got into the the treatment and the next steps and what was appropriate for Jack, did you quickly did the doctors were able to summarize i suppose the madness of what you'd found online?
4: Yeah, I think they gave us enough information to get us through, but I think the information that changes what you need on the way because as things in his treatment change or you know, you you don't know what to ask. You're overwhelmed with all the information at the beginning, and then you sort of have to try and filter it. And then you're sort of going back on the way. You, you're thinking, what did they say about that? Sure, or, you sure. know. So, yeah, it's, it'd be nice to have a good source of information where you can keep referring back and picking up the bits you need. Did Did you feel confident enough to question
1: what you're being told?
4: We asked a lot of questions. We As soon as we'd had the first meeting with the oncologist and with the orthopedic surgeon, we spoke to friends of ours who are doctors, and we said to them, "This is what's going on for us. This is where we're up to. What would you do?" And they said to us, "You're in the right place. You've got the right people around you." And we we pretty much relaxed after that. They, you know, said to us, "If that was our child." that's what we'd be doing as well. So I guess we took a lot of reassurance from that. Um, in terms of the treatment, there weren't a lot of options anyway. So we just had to go with it and hope for the best.
0: Right. And, you know, your friends that were in the medical game, um, they, were able, they were able to simplify even further, you know, what was going on?
4: Yeah, they, they, they were really helpful like – Obviously, the amount of information you get, you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we did refer back to them at times, but they just kept on reassuring us. It's you know, you're doing the right thing, and and these are the right people.
0: Okay, that's comforting. Yeah.
1: So you're a mum to three. Yes. Um, Jack's the eldest, and then we've got Harry and Lily. Yes. Was that difficult to to, to try to be a mum for three children when one really needed sort of a lot more time and and, yeah. and energy? And yes.
4: Well we decided early that Jack wasn't going to be alone while he went through the treatment and he had to spend a lot of the treatment time in hospital and when he was at home he generally wasn't very well anyway so we thought that was really important um, to be with him. But we had, Harry was two years younger, he was 18 and Lily was 16. So we still had to consider them and try and keep life as normal Mm. as possible, which is really difficult. We were lucky that they were old enough to look after themselves as well, but we didn't want to leave them alone either. So we basically worked at that. I spent the days at hospital with Jack and my husband, Neil, he would go into the hospital in the evenings and we'd either have a family meal together in the hospital Mm -hmm. or at home we'd divided up. Harry was at university, so it was, he had a lot of mixed emotions, I think, because he was going to be, supposed to be living at the same college as Jack. Right. They were there together. They'd always been really close as children, um, and they also both loved cricket, and they were hoping to play cricket together at university. Unfortunately, this it all fell apart when Jack was diagnosed. um and Harry still went to college and to university. We insisted that he still go. Uh-huh. He wasn't far away, so he could see Jack regularly. But I think for him it was really difficult because he was surrounded by people who were Jack's friends. Sure. He had a really close bunch of friends at the cricket club and at college. Um So that was reassuring for Harry in that they knew what he was going through, what was going on with Jack, but it was also... Difficult for him at the same time because he then became the the message man, and he had constantly had people sure. asking him source. about Jack, and and I mean he was dealing with his own thing, and then having to be the the voice as well was was a big struggle for him. He he didn't show it, but it wasn't really until the end of the treatment that we saw how much it had impacted on him. Um and he also, I think there was a lot of guilt for him that he was doing the things that Jack was sure. supposed to be doing as well. And the disappointment that they were supposed to do it together. So, and besides the general fear of what was going to come out of the treatment. And Lily was also, she was at home. Then she spent a bit more time by herself at home. So we used to try and make sure that one of us picked her up from school. She used to stay at school and work. So, um, one of us would have dinner with her or she'd come over and see Jack, but um, she found it more difficult to talk to her friends about it. They they were aware. We'd told everyone what was going on, <clears throat> but she found it a little bit awkward. Um, and then she, yeah, she kept to herself a lot, but sh- she was in the position where she had to, she was at home with Jack when he was home from treatment and generally his first eight days at home were really tough for him. Um, He suffered a lot from nausea, so it was really distressing for her to see her big brother like that, who'd been a solid rock for her, the lovely brother, as she called him.
0: (laughs) The lovely brother.
4: (laughs) As opposed to the devilish one. Yeah, right. The lovely (laughs)
0: brother. Harry, the troublemaker. (laughs) Okay. And how's she holding up now with it? She's great.
4: She had her moment uh, at the end when it was all over and Jack got the all clear, so... uh, Yes. No, she's she's good bracing for mm-hmm. the next round.
0: Right, okay. And when does the next round start?
4: So Jack has um, just had surgery a couple of weeks ago because the cancer has come back in his leg. So he's had another... Um, in the same leg? Same leg, just above the site where the other one was. So he'd had a 20-centimetre uh, replacement of his femur, and he's now got a thirty two centimetre replacement. They've taken another twelve centimeters okay um but the results of that surgery are positive um and he's now about to go in and have uh, another little node taken out of his right lung where the cancers recurred there as well so um yeah, we're all just bracing to get mm-hmm. through the next round
1: um were you put in contact with any other parents that were going through a similar journey to you guys? Not really. We did meet a few people on the way at the
4: hospital because you spend so much time there. Um, there are other people having treatment. Uh, we met, um, there was one girl who was going through the treatment similar to Jack and she was on the same schedule. So she was generally there at the same time as Jack and she was six weeks ahead of Jack in her treatment. So, and her and her family were. Fantastic! They're really positive, and we learnt a lot from them because they were that little bit ahead. Um, so we did get to know them, and they were generally near each other in the hospital. But it was a difficult time in that <clears throat> I didn't know whether we all had the energy to deal with any negative information. Um, there were people; we were obviously conscious of people being around who mm-hmm. were going through the same thing, um, but. <clears throat> it took all our energy just to get through mm, I wonder what that. we were doing. Yeah,
1: because yeah. you, you're trying to That's you're trying thing, to keep yeah. up for your whole family, aren't you? Yeah, and you're living it day in, day out, and sometimes trying to take someone else's on is just you just don't have room. Your no, cup, your cup is full. We we thought that was enough mm-hmm. for us. So, it, I think
4: it would be good to to talk to other parents, but I think maybe when they've sort of come out the other side and there's. Yep. More positive news. Absolutely. I think that's what you want because you really need to hang on to all the positives you can. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, through through the foundation, you know, the Cooper Rice Breeding Foundation, you know, there are those positive stories too mm. um, within within the group. Which you know, you're right. You've got to remember those. You have got to remember that. So there are successful stories, there are great outcomes.
4: Yeah.
0: Um, and hang on to all of them. Mm. Um, you know that was that must be something you need to keep reminding yourself.
4: Yeah, yeah. I think that's. That's how you keep stepping through each day is just hang on to the positives. Actually, Jack and I spent the year because he was turning 21 a couple of months after he finished treatment. So we spent the year planning the biggest 21st party ever. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think he got sick of talking about it, but (laughs) yeah, I kept on referring back to it and he's Friends came in and they engaged quite heavily, well. Heavily. Yeah. They, did.
0: they had a couple of ideas as well. Oh, they
1: had some great ideas. <laughs> Funny though. So yeah. And everything was yes, approved at that stage.
0: <laughs> I love that.
1: Um, Susie, for, for parents listening who are just starting this journey, have, have you got any advice, anything that you wish you'd known as you were, you know, starting this for this together with Jack? Um, I would say
4: just be honest and upfront with all your friends. Um Because you need to gather a big support network around you and that is how you're going to get through. Cling on to the positives, find whatever you can and just keep walking. Um, That's the only way.
0: One day at a time.
1: One day at a time, absolutely. Susie, that's great advice, I think. Absolutely.
0: Well done. Well spoken.
1: Yeah, thank Thank you you very much. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks, Susie. Sarcoma Awareness Month is a time when we acknowledge those who are currently undergoing treatment and their families, survivors, those yet to be diagnosed and the memories of those who walked this road, fought valiantly and tragically lost their lives to this cancer. Socket to Sarcoma and the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation wish to recognise each of these brave individuals. Together with the remarkable not-for-profit organisations dedicated to raising funding and awareness for sarcoma including rainbows for kate kicking goals for zav hannah's chance stony steps against sarcoma joanna sewell research grants the gpa andrew assini research grants and the sarah grace foundation with the generous help and support of the australian community Each have worked tirelessly to fund critical research and to further shine a light on sarcoma.